so vast and so wide, freely given to all who believe. It soars above the highest sky, and it floods the deepest sea. It moved your heart to send your only Son to die on Calvary's tree. And now your love has been poured in my soul, that its water may flow through me. Oh, Lord, I come to you with great shame, for I fear my work is in vain. I am moved by the sound of man's empty praise when I serve others in your name. If I give my wealth as a gift to the poor, or my body to the flames of the fire, still all will be lost when I stand in your sight. If my motives are love inspired. <laughs> oh Lord, how I long to be filled with your love. I lift up my dry, thirsty, my dry, thirsty soul. Overcome this love that I have for myself as I yield to the Spirit's control. May the love of Christ and my knowledge of him ever grow. So the service I give to my King above will reflect the love that he shown. Will reflect the love that he
Let's go and uh, let the children ages four years old through fourth grade head out to Children's Church. We're going to be in Acts chapter number 19 today, Acts chapter number 19. Pray that my uh, voice won't dry up on me. As you could tell, I was coughing in the middle of everything today. (laughs) So... (laughs) I'm um, trying to just keep it, keep it moist and everything. But. <clears throat> Acts chapter number 19, we are, Paul has come back to the city of Ephesus, okay? And he's there for a long period of time. And if you remember anything about Ephesus, thank you, Jim. If you remember anything about Ephesus, this was a city that was consumed with magic and witchcraft And we'll kind of see how that plays out in Paul's ministry, because it does have an impact on what happens in the city of Ephesus here. But we're going to be looking at, it's almost kind of like a parenthetical section of the chapter, like it doesn't feel like it belongs, but it does fit in with the overall context of the the text. Let's go and read Acts chapter 19. We're going to start in verse number 8, where we left off in in our last message. Just to introduce it, it says, and, w- and he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. And when divers were hardened, and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years. So that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the words of the Lord Jesus, both Jew and Greeks. And God wrought special miracles by the hand of Paul. So that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the men in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds, and many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. I want to open up in a a word of prayer this morning. Father, I... uh, Pray that, Lord, you'll wake us up to the battle that we are actually in. I think most of us, they feel like and, and think that we're on vacation, just waiting you to come call us home, Lord. And that's not the case. And I pray that you'll guide me as I preach your word, help me to say only the things that you want me to say, Lord, and to be clear and concise and accurate, Lord, in, in what I say. Pray that... You will, you will uh, defeat your enemy today in this service and that any efforts that he has to fight against the truth will be uh, eliminated 
Lord, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So the topic for this morning's message, it's not one that I'm going to be preaching on a whole lot. It's not one that I'm going to be, preach, be preaching years worth of messages on because some people can get so consumed with this topic, but it also is not one that I'm going to ignore. Okay? Tonight, today we're going to be talking about spiritual warfare, and I've been doing a lot of research and preparation over the past month. Normally I read about a book a week. I've read five in two weeks, okay? So because I'm trying to prepare and understand this topic as the Bible actually teaches it. And I think as I've done all this study, as I've been looking into this topic, I've noticed that there are many ditches you can fall into when it comes to this topic. There, you, can, you can go off into error so easily when we are dealing with the topic of spiritual warfare. But that doesn't mean we ignore the topic altogether, and pretend like it doesn't exist. Luke had us sing, hold the fort, right? We are in a battle. We are holding the fort. We are fighting in a cause. And I, but I don't think most of us are awake to that. We don't, realize, we don't realize what battle we are actually in. But God's desire is not that we would live in ignorance. Okay, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11 says, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. The implication of that verse is this, is that ignorance leaves you open to attack. When I was younger, I uh, met and befriended actually an evangelist named Chuck Cofty. He fought in the Vietnam War. And Chuck Cofty would tell stories about his experiences over in Vietnam. But Vietnam was not like many of the wars that we had fought in the past, especially not like the Revolutionary War. Let's all stay in a neat little rows and shoot at each other, right, kind of thing? No, anyways. So, but Vietnam was totally different in the fact that we were going in and we were going into a, a terrain that was mainly jungle, and those people of Vietnam, they used that jungle to their advantage. They would have rice fields, and they would stick spikes in the rice fields, and as the soldiers would walk through, they would step on those spikes. There would be booby traps set up with big logs with spikes on them that you would, if they, were, if they were triggered, would swing and would kill the soldiers. But those soldiers going into Vietnam, if they were ignorant of this type of warfare, they were going to die in their fight. They needed to know what the enemy, who the enemy was and what the enemy did, and they needed to be prepared for the battle that they were in. But when it, when it comes to spiritual warfare, we cannot be ignorant lest Satan get an advantage over us. So as we deal with this topic, I can't exhaustively deal with every verse, okay? And we're actually going to be dealing with the negative side of it today, and in the future I'll preach up the positive side of it. But what I want to look at today is what spiritual warfare is not, okay? What spiritual warfare is not, so this morning, we'll take a look at this text, and I'm going to draw three lessons from the text, hopefully, that will help us to avoid the ditches on both sides of this issue. But biblical teaching on the topic, it's not going to drive us to the extremes of fear or giving up, or, um, and, and oftentimes people can become so consumed with this topic, but I want us to understand that demonic and demonic activity is a real battle that we need to fight. So we're going to start in verse number 15, and we're going to notice here, first of all, and the, the verse numbers won't be in order because I'm just trying to logically flow through this thought here, 
But verse 15 says, And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? One of the ditches that oftentimes we can fall into when talking about spiritual warfare is to believe that Satan has no influence on the life of a believer at all. And I think this is how most of us live, whether we believe it or not. The devil and his demons are real. That's the first point tonight. The devil and his demons are real. Verse 15, Luke presents this text right here, and he acknowledges the presence of an evil spirit. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. That passage teaches that Satan, our enemy, he roams about seeking whom he may devour. He wants to destroy us. Other passages we're not going to look at today tell us what he actually is attacking. He wants to destroy our faith, our trust, our dependence in God, and thereby make us unfruitful as believers. But notice in this text, Luke acknowledges the real presence of demons. As I studied this topic, I got a book called The Four Views on Spiritual Warfare. And the very first view was that the devil doesn't exist, that he is a metaphor for evil, okay? That is not truth, okay? That is lies right there. And honestly, that comes from liberalism more than anything else. They believe that the devil is just a metaphor for all the evils that Hitler did and people did throughout history and all these things. He's not a real person. But that is not how the Bible presents the devil, he, is, he has a will, he has a mind, he has personality, he has an agenda that he wants to accomplish, and he is actively involved in the world today. Now we know the Christian has three enemies, let's name them. Anybody know them? The first one is the flesh, the second, the world, and the third is the devil, okay? And yet I think honestly that most of us live as if we only had two. That's the honest truth. I think most of us are conscious of two enemies in our lives, and we've totally forgotten the third one. And I think Satan likes it that way. We preach and we talk about the flesh and its influences on believers. And my struggle with the flesh is daily. I know that battle all too well, right? Every moment that I, am, that I, that I hear my alarm clock go off at 6 a.m. to have my time of prayer, my flesh says, don't get up, okay? So, you know, I know that battle. But then the temptation to sin, the struggle with sin that we constantly face, the selfishness, the pride, the anxiety of our life, we know that battle. We know that enemy, the flesh. We also know the battle of the world. We challenge our teenagers all the time, don't be conformed to this world. You look at the way our country is run today, You'd have to be ignorant to believe that our, that our government is in favor of Christianity and promoting good, wholesome values, right? The society we live in is against God, and it is fighting against God, and we acknowledge that. But I think a lot of times we don't talk about the devil enough, because, and again, like I said, because Satan likes it that way. But the biblical teaching on the, on the topic of Satan it sh is oftentimes negative, and it causes people to fear their enemy. But the biblical teaching on this topic will not drive us to those extremes. Satan and his demons are real. And I don't just say that from a theological perspective. I say that from practical experience as well. I've lived overseas. I've been in situations where I have experienced demonic activity in my life. I personally have been here. 
I think America, we've bought into a naturalistic worldview. And Satan uses that to his advantage. He doesn't show himself as much here in America because we're fine not believing he exists. And if you don't believe he exists, you don't fight against him, right? But in the rest of the world, he, uh, he oppresses people through fear. And so we, we need to understand that our mindset cannot be shaped by our American naturalistic philosophies. It has to be shaped by what the Bible actually says. So in this text, we see that the demon is real, but what, it, what did he do? Because he is real, this demon spoke, right? He spoke through the possessed person. Evil forces without intelligence, they don't speak. The evil of the world doesn't have a voice like that. This is a real being that speaks. Satan's main plan of attack is primary, primarily through lies and through accusations. John 8, verse 44 says, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Satan loves to get us to believe lies. That's his main way that he attacks us as Christians. Have you ever had a moment that was really, really hard? Maybe you were without a job and your, or your job got taken away from you and you struggled with believing that God was good in that moment. Satan wanted to, to convince you that God doesn't love you enough to give you that job or this thing that you loved in your life that was taken away. Your, and your mind interprets that as, as evil in God. And Satan wants you to believe those kinds of lies. But he is also an accuser. Revelation 12, verse 10 says, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. He's called the accuser of the brethren. When Satan attacks a believer... His main mode of attack is through lies and through accusations. There are many times when, as believers, we sin. That's the honest truth. That is our experience. We sin. But we know 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But how many times have we confessed our sins and then we get up off our knees and then we don't live in that victory. We don't live in that truth. Satan is constantly accusing us, saying, eh, you didn't really mean it. God does, God's not going to forgive you. You're too bad. You're too far gone, right? Satan lobs his accusations against us because he knows if we can live in that defeat, we won't fight back. We'll be hunkering down in our foxhole, not fighting the battle that we're supposed to be fighting. <clears throat> so in this text, the demon, the, the demon is real. He spoke. But also notice here that the, the demon physically attacked these men. It says uh, that here that he leaped upon them and he prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked. I think when you talk about our, our enemy Satan, the real question that people want to know is this, is what can he do? And in the life of a lost person, Satan, Satan can do nearly anything that he wants to if it is permitted by God. Think of... Think of this story right here, a lost man, and he flees on him, and he physically attacks him. And throughout the gospel in the book of Acts, we see multiple accounts of possessed people who are taken. They're thrown into the fire. 
They're, they uh, would rant and rave. They would tear themselves. They would, they would be chained and they would break the chains. <clears throat> these demon, the demons control what these people are saying and what these people do. And in the lost, Satan loves. His main plan of attack is to blind the minds of the lost to the gospel. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. Second Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4. And this should wake us up as Christians in this passage, because there is a challenge here in these verses for us. But for the lost, Satan wants to blind their eyes. In, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ... Sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. If our gospel is hid, it is hid to those who are lost, and Satan has blinded their eyes to that truth. He does not want them to see the gospel. He does not want to see that there is freedom in Jesus Christ, and so he blinds their eyes to that truth. I could keep talking about what things... Satan can do to the unbeliever, but I think the real question we want to ask today is this, what can he do to a believer? So I'm going to give you, first of all, start off with this statement. I do not believe that a demon can possess a Christian. I take the traditional standard view of this, of this concept. I do not believe that a demon can possess a Christian. A couple reasons. First of all, John 17, verse 15 says, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. And that phrase, the evil there, is literally the evil one. Jesus prayed that we would be kept from the evil one. Now, when I think about the prayers of Jesus, how many of them went unanswered prayer, went unanswered? <laughs> Zero, right? Maybe one. Let this cut pass from me. That's the only one I can think of, okay? So, but yes, Jesus' prayers were honored by God. If Jesus is praying this for us, and he is still in heaven right now, making intercession for us, his prayer is being answered. But even more than that, I, I, I believe in Hebrews chapter 2, we're given another reason why Satan cannot possess a believer. In Hebrews chapter number 2, starting in verse 14 through 15, says, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, so Jesus became a man, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Question is this, who is it who is being delivered in this passage? Anybody? Not everybody. Christians. What's that? Believers. Believers are being delivered from this bondage by Jesus Christ who died for our sins. And in that, and in that case, the believer who, who once was in fear of death, who was in bondage to Satan, is now set free from that bondage. The believer in his position does not, is set free completely from Satan's bondage. 
I believe we have the Holy Spirit living within us, and I think the Holy Spirit's presence is part of that element of what keeps a, a believer from being able to be possessed. Added to these verses is this fact. In all the examples of the New Testament, when you have demon possession, is there a single one of them where the person was a believer? Any single one of them. So why would I even think that this was possible? There's none mentioned ever. I would be arguing from silence if I believe a demon could, be, could possess a Christian because there are no examples in all of Scripture. This does not mean, though, that Satan has no influence on a believer. Satan still is fighting against you. It's not like you have this bubble. You ever see those knocker balls? You know, those things where you crawl in? It's this big, huge, inflatable ball, and then you roll down the hill kind of thing. It's not like we have this big, huge knocker ball around us that keeps Satan from being able to touch our lives and influence and affect us, right? In fact, Satan has targeted the believer. We are his enemies. We are the ones he can fight against. He's, he's powerless against God. But we are the ones that he wants to attack. And for the believer, he can influence us in, in, I think I've got five different ways here. Yeah, something like that, okay? First one, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 3. 2 Corinthians 11, verse number 3. Second Corinthians 11, verse 3. Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, who are believers. Paul says, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Spiritually, I'm presenting you as a bride to Christ. But verse 3, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. And then he continues on. But, but the idea here is that, Jesus, that Satan wants to turn us from the simplicity of the gospel. There are many false churches out there. There are many Christians who get sucked into heresy, which is going to tie in with our next point. So let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter number 4. Satan blinds the lost, but he wants to turn the believer away from the simplicity of the gospel. 1 Timothy chapter number 4. Like I said, I'm not exegeting every single one of these passages. This is an introduction to spiritual warfare. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3. Second thing that Satan can do is Satan can convince us of false doctrine. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3. Now the Spirit, that's God's Spirit, speaketh expressly, that in the latter times, which are we not there? In the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to what kind of spirits? Seducing spirits and doctrines of whom? Devils speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which, believed and, which believe and know the truth. Okay, I always have to throw in here, so you have the Catholics here forbidding to marry, and then you have Hallelujah Acres saying you can't eat meat. Okay, anybody get that? No. Okay, so, but, that, but this is true. These are false doctrines. These are false legalistic doctrines that are being pushed in these churches here. But where do those doctrines come from? 
who produced them. They're doctrines of demons. The devil wants to get Christians to believe lies, so their walk will be sidetracked, their influence will be sidetracked, and the lost who hear our message will be sidetracked because of it. And so Satan can convince us of false doctrine. Satan also causes division among believers. Let's turn to James chapter number 3. James chapter number 3. Verses 13 through 16. Again, written to believers. Verse 1 says, my brethren. Okay, These are Christians here. James 3 verse 13 through 16. says, who is a wise man and a dude with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envyings and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. There are two types of wisdom out there. There is the wisdom of God. And the wisdom that isn't of God is, all, is how I'm going to define it. We would say, you could say the wisdom of the world, but it's not just of the world here. The, these two wisdoms are in opposition to each other. You can have people who come in and, they, and they, they are strong and they teach on a certain truth, but it isn't God's truth because they're using it as a weapon to divide believers. How many times have we seen that? Almost every, every time churches have splits, somebody is coming in with their wisdom and causing problems. And, that, and when you have a teaching or a wisdom that is intended, that is focusing on splitting people apart, who is the source of that, that wisdom? This wisdom is earthly, sensual, devilish. It is from the devil. De- the Satan is trying to divide his people because if we, aren't, if we are divided, we can't stand. An army, in order to be strong, needs to be united. And Satan wants to divide believers. Fourth thing is Satan can inflict a believer physically. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 7. We know this passage. This is Paul's thorn in the flesh passage, right? 2 Corinthians 12, verse number 7. Paul has talked about this vision that he's had. He was caught up to the third heaven. And lest I should be exalted, verse 7 starts, above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Now, who is this thorn in the flesh? The messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. So that God allowed Satan to buffet Paul physically. His flesh is is what's being afflicted by this thorn in the flesh. But it was the messenger of Satan to buffet him. And that word buffet refers to physical impairment. It is used of things like, in in Greek culture, it was used for epilepsy, hysteria, depression, headaches, eye trouble, leprosy, and speech impediments. Those are all things that this word was used to describe in the Greek language back then. But Satan, Satan has permission, think of Job, to afflict us physically, right? Another verse that kind of cinches this is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. In the, in the church of Corinth, there is a man who is caught in sexual sin. And in 1 Corinthians 5, the church is told to deal with that sin, to practice church discipline. 
But what is the end result of that church discipline? Verse number five. They are told to deliver such an one unto Satan. Why? For the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This person, this believer, in theory, is kicked out of the church to be, buff, to be attacked by Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So Satan can afflict us physically. Next one, Satan can build strongholds in our lives. And this is the most important one, I think, in the believer's life in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 10, starting in verse number 3, says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. I can't pull a machine gun and shoot Satan, right? Okay, pretty simple, pretty easy. I don't have a physical weapon to fight against the devil. But the weapons of our warfare, and I think that's, that should be linked to Ephesians 6, if you're, if you're going to study this out. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. One of Satan's methods of attack is to build up strongholds in our lives. Now that word, it's very ambiguous to a lot of people. What is a stronghold? What does this mean? But the text actually tells us what a stronghold is. Read verse 5. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. In this text, there, these words are used. Imaginations, high things, knowledge, thoughts. All these things are descriptive of what a stronghold is. Strongholds, by definition, are a persistent pattern of sinful thinking in our lives. Satan wants you to believe his lies. He wants you to, to believe them so much that they become ingrained into how you act and how you respond. There are a lot of sins in our lives that they've been there for quite a while, right? They've been ingrained into the way that we act. Selfishness. Selfishness, every single day you wake up, you struggle with that at some level, is ingrained into us as a pattern, a sinful pattern of thinking in our lives. We've allowed Satan to whisper lies, and we have believed them so much that we have, become, we have a habit of operating according to those lies. <clears throat> but 2 Timothy 2, verse 26, continues the same thought, says, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who hath taken captive by him at his will. This is talking about believers again. And we'll look at that verse in a little bit more detail later. But a believer can be ensnared, can be trapped. Satan can build strongholds that set in and make it difficult for us to have victory because we have believed these persistent patterns of lies in our lives. When we look at how Satan attacked believers, he convinced them of lies. And we have a practical example of this. The story of Ananias and Sapphira. Let's go and turn there. Acts chapter 5. We preached on this in the past, but let's look, look at detail and how this applies. Acts chapter number 5. First question, were Ananias and Sapphira believers? Yes, they were. They were believers, okay? But Satan was attacking the early church. I mentioned that when I preached on this. Satan was attacking by 
convincing Ananias and Sapphira to live in hypocritically, really. But notice uh, verse, number five, uh, verse number three, chapter five, verse three. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price? Satan filled Ananias' heart with what? With lies. That was his plan of attack. This is not the same thing as possession here when it says he was filled. But Satan has filled his heart up with lies. He has attacked him and he has built a stronghold in Ananias' heart. And I believe this verse indicates that Satan, the way he communicates those lies, he can tell you lies through TV, right? How many lies are on public TV every single day? Okay? If you buy this makeup, you'll look beautiful. Well, I'm sorry, it's not going to work for me, okay? So, if you buy this dog food, your dog will live to be 100 years old, okay? We got lies in public advertising all the time. We also got lies in the things that we read in our books. There are books out there with lies, right? Other people can tell us lies, and we believe them. But I believe, honestly, from this verse, that Satan communicates lies directly to our hearts. He doesn't have to have a physical voice to do it. He is a spirit, and spirit communicates with spirit. Notice he filled Ananias's what? His heart with lies. We don't have any record that anybody else told him these lies. Satan went directly to Ananias's heart and filled it with lies. So not every, not every thought that enters your mind is necessarily the Holy Spirit. Not every thought that enters your mind is even necessarily directly from you. But if you take it as your own, you, you hold on to that, Satan gets a foothold in your life, and he can influence you. <clears throat> Satan can also ensnare us with temptations. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. So his primary means of attack is through lies, but it's not his only means of attack. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 through 11. <clears throat> says, to whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Why did I do this? Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. We already looked at that, but now we're tying it to the context here. Satan has an opportunity to get an advantage over us by lies that we believe and by temptation to sin. By getting us to give in to sin, by tempting us. To sin, And we are told at least of two specific ones that allow Satan to have this influence in our life. There are others. But we are clearly told unforgiveness gives Satan an advantage over you. If you are not forgiving other people, Satan has an advantage over you. And he will take advantage of that advantage. Again, let's look at it. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in Christ Jesus. Notice the punctuation is a semicolon. Lest or so that Satan should get an advantage of us. I've, I've done this so that he won't get an advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices, his thoughts, his schemes, his plans to trap us. Next one is in Ephesians chapter number 4. Ephesians chapter number 4. Verse 26 through 27. So unforgiveness gives Satan an advantage over us, a foothold in our life. In Ephesians 4, verses 26 through 27, it says, Be ye angry, and sin not. 
Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Now, if you guys know your English, what's that punctuation point? Colon. What follows is directly tied to what, what has just been said. Anger and sin ultimately lead to verse 27. Neither give place to the devil. Unresolved anger in our lives gives Satan a foothold in our lives. And we need to be aware of that. That unforgiveness and anger can give Satan a, a, a foothold into our lives. Now we've gone into all this detail to point out that Satan is not an insignificant enemy. He is not somebody we can just forget about. He is real and he is waging war against us. We must avoid the one ditch on the one side of thinking that he has no influence on my life. But there is a second ditch on the other side. And that is thinking that everything is Satan. And behind every sin and behind every cough that I ever have is a demon. Okay? How many churches do we have consumed with that, that extreme? Right? Let's turn back to Acts chapter number 19. Acts chapter number 19. <clears throat> I'm going to argue from this text and from the rest of Scripture that casting out demons is not normal Christian experience. It is not normative. And we aren't expected to be casting out demons every single day. I know ministries that do this, that every, every counseling situation is a demon, and you've got to cast out that demon in every single situation. So the second thing I want to notice about this text is that this was not normal Christian experience, Okay. So the second ditch is thinking everything is a demon and we must cast at them all out. Now, one of the graduates of Ambassador Baptist College, a, a graduate of the college I graduated from, okay, he has become well known for this exact problem. Okay? He started out in fame because he was an avid supporter of Donald Trump and he was not afraid to braggadociously talk about it on Facebook. Okay? And that launched him to fame, but he has since... Uh, been skyrocketed even more into the charismatic ministries through his deliverance ministries. He came out with a documentary about his ministry called Come Out in Jesus' Name. I don't know if you saw that, but this is Greg Locke, okay? Greg Locke at one time was an independent Baptist preaching. I never really liked him, but anyways, he was preaching somewhat, you know, the, the truth at that time. But he is, he is the other ditch that you must be aware of. Many deliverance ministries have popped up throughout Christianity, and it's not just Pentecostals. Independent Baptists have latched onto this idea as well. <clears throat> and, and, I, and, and don't misunderstand me, demon possession is a reality in the lost. But the way that these ministries pr the propose dealing with that is not biblical. Um, one example I think in our churches, and actually I read a book by this man, and 99% of the book was good. But then I read other books by this man, and they were not good. It was Neil Anderson. I don't know if you've ever heard of that name before, okay? But his method of ministry, of spiritual warfare, is basically to cast out a demon for every problem that you ever face. That's, that's the focus of his ministry. And as I studied this passage and the biblical meaning on this issue, I realized that casting out demons was never normal experience, except during the time of Jesus and the apostles. Look at the Old Testament. How many exorcisms do you see in the Old Testament? There's one maybe. David playing his harp and, and the spirit leaving Saul. That's the closest you're going to get to an exorcism in the Old Testament. It was not normal practice, even in the Old Testament. Add to that, we, are, we must also consider this fact. The epistles were written so that we would know how to conduct our Christian lives, right? 
Can you name me a single passage that tells me how to do an exorcism in the rest of the Bible? Anywhere? If it was so important, why don't we have those instructions? If it was something we were supposed to be doing on a daily basis, why, why, why is there this absence of instruction on casting out demons? Notice the context of these verses. We, we started in verse 8 for a reason. Paul continues preaching in Ephesus. He, the Jews reject his message, so he goes and he takes his disciples into a school, the school of Tyrannus, which that could be evidence for seminary education right there, okay, the disciples. But this continued by the, he continued there the space of two, out, two years, and it says, and God wrought special miracles by the hand of Paul. What was that word before miracles? Special. What does special mean? Unusual. Abnormal, right? Special miracles by the hand of Paul. And what happened? So that from his body were brought the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out from them. I don't know who it is, but I know I've watched on TBN guys saying, I've got these handkerchiefs. If you just send in your money, I'll send it to you, and you'll be healed of your diseases, right? Well, this is where they're getting it from, but is, is this type of activity supposed to be normal in the Christian life? No, it's not. It's special. It's abnormal. Why? <laughs> because this is an apostle, the Apostle Paul, and he's bringing the gospel into new areas, and God is working miracles through him to confirm that message. That's the context of our text here. And so the, these vagabond Jews of verse 13, unsaved Jews who are exorcists, they see that Paul's able to do some stuff like this. In fact, among the things that Paul was do does is evil spirits went out from people, right? They see what Paul's able to do, and they want to copy that. They want to do what he's doing. And so they decide they're going to call over the, the sp spirits the name of Jesus and Paul, and Paul over these spirits, and that these spirits would flee. <clears throat> That's the context for this chapter. But I think we, we cannot avoid the fact that these things were happening because Paul was an apostle. He was an apostle. Um, in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, this is a very foundational verse for all of our beliefs on the sign gifts and miracles and things like that. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12 says, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. These miracles were initially intended to be signs of an apostle, an apostle's work. An apostle was those ones commissioned by Jesus Christ to go and to preach the gospel and to take his message into the world. And those, those miracles were signs of the truth of the message. But as that message went out from the world, we can trace historically those sign gifts, those miraculous things like casting out demons, they faded away over time. Mark 16, verse 17 says, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, and they shall speak with new tongues. But you've got you to gotta tie in two things to this verse here. One, it doesn't say every single one of them will. Okay? But two, the, the previous verses are dealing with the Great Commission. And the, as that gospel is going out, that, the, that it would be accompanied by the casting out of demons. Because it's not spelled in, out in Scripture how to do this, or even commanded for us to do this, I believe that it is not expected to be normal Christian experience. There could be some circumstance where the demon-possessed man comes into the church, and what do we do? Um, I'd probably 
default to James chapter 5. We'll get the pastors of the church together. We'll all pray over this guy. <laughs> okay, so with prayer and fasting. But, but we don't have any, any guidance on this issue because it isn't normal Christian experience. Also seeing that a Christian cannot be possessed, casting out demons is not necessary to liberate a believer from addictions and strongholds in their lives. Those things are done through normal Christian practices like repentance, confession of sin, mortifying the flesh, and renewing the mind. Those are, that's normal Christian experience right there. We fight that battle in the strength of Christ through normal Christian living. In fact, if you look at Ephesians chapter number 6, we are told the armor that we are to put on to fight this battle. One thing I've, I've been noticing, though, is that all these things that describe this armor, they are all graces that come from Jesus Christ. Our strength to fight the battle comes in abiding in Christ. It is not through casting demons out because I'm struggling with an addiction to pride or an addiction to anger. That's not how this is done, and it is not, that is not normal Christian practice. So anybody who tells you spiritual warfare, you need to do these things, your mind should automatically be antennas up saying, but where in the Bible do I see any of this, right? Okay. The third thing in the text, verse 13, Acts chapter 19, verse 13. Again, we mentioned these exorcists, they come, they cast out the evil spirits, or they try to cast out the evil spirits, and they call on the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, we adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. And what happens? The sons of Sceva, they do exactly the same thing, and the evil spirit answers them. He speaks back to them, and he says what? Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Who are you? And I think the point of this text is this, is that there is no magical formula of words to cast out a demon. That's, that's, that's what I get from this text. The authority to cast out these demons comes from Jesus Christ and those that he has given it directly to, and that's it. There is no magical formula to make this happen. <clears throat> we see Jesus talking about binding the strong man, but he did that through the cross. But we do not see any examples in scripture of a believer making statements like this. I bind you, Satan. Or in, I am a child of God and you must come out. We don't see those things going on. So many ministries have gotten sidetracked from the real battle by asking demons their names or their territories. Where do you see that either, right? It's not there. Or by calling demons out by name and binding them or claiming that I have the power to call you out. And I think this is tied to the previous point that this is not normal. There is no power in some magic words. If there were a magic formula for casting demons out, don't you think Paul would have given it to us? We would have had it in scripture? I found this list from one charismatic preacher made statements like this. I break and release myself from all generational curses and iniquities as a result of the sins of my ancestors in the name of Jesus. Uh, this, this would come from Neil Anderson. I break and release myself from all curses on both sides of my family back 60 generations. Why not 100? Okay. I break all curses of witchcraft, sorcery, and divi divination in the name of Jesus. And he continues on. I break all curses of sickness and infirmity, of poverty or lack and debt of rejection in the name of Jesus. I break re and release myself from all curses of double-mindedness and schizophrenia in the name of Jesus. I, I break and release myself from the curse of Jezebel and Ahab in the name of Jesus. 
and lust and perversion, divorce and separation. And I'm just reading their list, okay? Idolatry. I release myself from all curses causing accidents and premature death in the name of Jesus. I break and release myself from all spoken curses, from all negative words spoken against me and by others and by those in authority. I bless them. Okay, and, th and then this long one, this is recommended by Neil Anderson in the back of his book. He says, I command every demon hiding and operating behind a, a curse to come out of me in the name of Jesus. You are no longer welcome in my body or soul, and you have no right or authority to be here. I cast you out in the name of Jesus. Every demon of depression, anxiety, fear, torment, every demon coming from curses, from the bloodline of oaths and contracts, we break in the name of Jesus and cast you out in the name of Jesus. Where do you see any of that in the Bible? Not one stitch of those words is found in the Bible. There is no magical mantra that you can quote that is going to cast a demon and going to fight against Satan in your life. The power only comes from Jesus Christ, and that's where Ephesians 6 becomes so important. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Our power to fight this battle is not in magical words. It's not in binding Satan. It's not in um, rebuking physical illnesses and things like that and finding out the demon's name or there's territory. That's not where the power lies. Power lies in Jesus Christ. When presented with the reality of Satan, some people might be tempted to struggle with confusion or fear. But that's not what God wants for his children. 1 John 4 verse 4 says, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I don't have anything to fear if I am fighting with the whole armor on against Satan, because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. We have everything we need to live in victory over the devil. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. You have everything you need to live a God-glorifying, godly life through Jesus Christ, through his spirit indwelling in you. In Christ, we do not have to let him have the victory in our lives. And in Christ, we have been given all the armors and the weapons to fight this battle. I can't preach through the entire armor of God right now, but I challenge you to read Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, because that is where our battle is won. That is the positive side of this spiritual warfare, is Ephesians chapter number 6. So this message this morning has mainly been teaching, but let me challenge every one of you to ask yourself how you might be allowing Satan to get a foothold in your life, to get an advantage over you. Are you living in unforgiveness toward another brother? I loved this quote, forgiveness is to set a prisoner free and finding out that you were the prisoner. Are you allowing anger to hurt your relationships with others? And what lies has Satan convinced you of that you are keeping from, that, that are keeping you from living in victory? Head bowed, heads bowed, eyes closed this morning. 2 Corinthians 10 says, our weapons are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. Even though strongholds are like, are like, wooden shacks compared to God's power. You do not have to live in defeat. Satan is your enemy and he is a serious enemy to take in, into account, but we should not cower in fear before him. If you need counseling or if you need prayer, 
as the piano plays this morning, we'll all stand, head bowed, and eyes closed. But as the piano plays, if you need counseling or prayer, please come see me. But let's take our battle seriously. Let's not pretend like it doesn't exist, but let's not make it like there's a demon behind every bush either. Luke, do you mind closing us in prayer this morning?